I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is the Healthy Options program on WERU. Today on Healthy Options, we will be discussing the many facets of hospice care, and there are more services offered through hospice than we might realize. So we will also review the realities and the misconceptions as we look to broaden our awareness of hospice care. Our guest today is Jody Wolford Tucker, the Executive Director of Hospice Volunteers of Hancock County. Jody Wolford Tucker holds a bachelor's degree in social work from Purdue University, a master's in humanities, and a PhD in education from Old Dominion University. For the past 30 years, she's been a teacher and administrator in educational settings and community-based services organization, service organizations, and as the executive director of hospice volunteers of Hancock County since, since 2006, Jody Wolford Tucker has been a member of hospice teams and has worked to nurture community partnerships for hospice care. So welcome to uh, Healthy Options, Jody Wolford Tucker. It's good to talk with you today. So here we are. So much to say, and, and uh, you, should we be calling you Dr. Tucker? Since you have that your is PhD. Okay, I'm good with Jody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Dr. J. I have been known to be called Dr. J. Okay. I'll, I'm fine well, maybe not. Jody. Okay. So there it's we nice go. to talk with you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. So let's start at the very beginning. Um, many of us have preconceptions or an idea of what hospice care is. Perhaps you can just give us a, a, a nice overview and we can we can start from there. Well, most people do think of hospice having to do with end of life journeys, and that is accurate. Um, but misconceptions include that hospice is only for the very end. And once a person is on hospice, it's all over and um, that it's all about sadness. And those are misconceptions. Um, hospice as a discipline can come in much earlier than is typically thought of by the general population. When a person is in a life-limiting journey, there still may be a lot of living to do and a lot of richness to be lived with loved ones and with goals to be um, reached in life. And hospice can help make that happen. Those things happen. Um, in our area, we have a unique situation that a lot of people are not familiar with, which is that we have medical hospice providers who bring to the team, the medical director, the nurses, the home health aides, social workers, chaplains, and a separate organization, which is our organization, Hospice Volunteers of Hancock County, which is an independent program that provides the volunteer members of the hospice team free of charge. And we partner very closely together with the medical hospices, but it's a really a beautiful system it evolved be back in the day when there were no hospice services available in Hancock County 40 years ago. This organization, Hospice Volunteers of Hancock County, was founded as an independent grassroots movement providing free services and has remained that in the ensuing years as the medical hospices have come into the county. In their wisdom, they have partnered with us contractually to provide the volunteer members of the hospice team, which is defined by Medicare and other 
other care um, funders um, to include all those positions that I named, the medical providers and the hospice volunteers. They're part of the mandated members of the team. Because hospice as a discipline is about an interdisciplinary approach, a holistic approach, a let's bring all the players together with the patient, with the caregivers, with the family members, with the medical care providers, and with those other folks who are supporting the patient in their journey and see how together we can both provide the needed support and make the experience as positive and as rich as it can be. So this is really uh, interesting to me, and I don't think I even was aware of this as because it is hospice volunteers, that there is the, the, what we think of hospice as end of life, perhaps, I know down on the mid coast of Maine, and this is true throughout the country. You know, we have a, a, a setting, a Sussman house where people go for end of life uh, situations. But we're, we're, we're talking about a very different kind of situation here, although that is part of, of what you're providing. When we say hospice volunteers, we're talking about people in the community coming together to help people in their journey, to help people at different phases. So how would somebody get, uh, when would somebody be avail- uh, qualified for hospice? What, is, what right. does that mean? Well, interestingly, I'll just add that um, Maine still has seven independent volunteer hospice programs of which hospice volunteers of Hancock County is one. There's hospice volunteers of Waldo County. There's Waterville Valley, Pine Tree Hospice, Coastal. Um, I, I can't name them all off the top of my head, but there are seven. There are only a, less than 40 independent volunteer hospice programs left in the country. And Maine has seven of them. So a lot of people are confused by this model. But to me, it's the best of both worlds because available to everyone in the community who needs it are the medical hospice services. And those are top notch. We love partnering with these providers whose hearts are in the right place and whose professionalism is great. And those are paid for by funders like Medicare and other other funders. Our program is offered free of charge. And so we have a little more freedom We are licensed by the state as an independent volunteer hospice program. There's a specific set of requirements and protocols, et cetera. Um, But we have a little more flexibility in terms of when we can come into a person's journey. We are still about supporting someone in a life-limiting journey, and we can't be all things to all people, but we can come in earlier than some of the medical services could kick in. Yeah. And um, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, So you asked me, though, a question about someone becoming a hospice volunteer. Again, we are licensed by the state. So there's a very specific and extensive training for folks who want to provide direct services as a hospice volunteer. And in our case, we have two different types of direct service volunteers, the patient care volunteers, which is probably what most people would think of as a hospice volunteer, and bereavement support volunteers who are trained to support those who are grieving the loss of loved ones. So is this where people would have um, 
grief groups throughout a community. I know that's been done here and I'm sure in, in Hancock and in, in these other areas. Um, so is that is that what you mean by? Yes, um, so grief support is provided both on a one-on-one -on -one basis and in a group setting. And there's advantages to both, obviously, personal preference, but also um, just stages on a person's journey in terms of grieving and um, kind of moving through one to another and um, then the support that is and the growth and the enlightenment that can come through connecting with others who are in similar journeys. Um, and those are very, very popular um, and very effective. We get amazing both participation and feedback from people who participate in our support groups as well as our one-on-one -on -one support. Um, so the volunteer trainings, each type are 32 hours spread over a period of weeks. And um, I think of them as being like three, having three um, parts to them. Education about the issues that they're dealing with, end of life journeys and health related matters and grief issues and so forth. So the knowledge the skills development for how to serve in that role. And they're trained very specifically in how to serve in these roles. And then the third component being a personal journey. The volunteer learns so much about themselves as they go through these training programs and have very um, rich resources available to them and, you know, the, the sharing that's done by the trainers and so forth. Um, the feedback we get from folks who go through our volunteer trainings is really something. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. You know, uh, the, the next show we'll do, we'll have everybody here. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll yeah. have some of these people. But in the meantime, um, you've gone through all of this, I'm sure, as the director yes. of all these years. Yes. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit. What, what, what are people challenged to look at? What do you do when you're becoming a volunteer? What, what... Well, again, looking at the, the specifics of you know, the trajectory of an end of life illness and often what the individual is going through and what the family caregivers are going through. And then coupled with that would be family dynamics and communication, both in terms of communication and with people are, who are in the, their, these journeys, either end of life or life limiting illness, or, you know, the grief journey that they're in, the caregivers who are I mean, we just can't possibly convey enough um, praise onto caregivers for loved ones. I mean, this is a, a life, talk about a life journey. There's another one right there, the caregiving role. So communication, presence, presence is huge. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be present? Does it, what does it mean to set our own agendas aside as we enter a space with the person or people that we're going to serve? Um, spirituality, there's a lot of spirituality questions that come up for people who are in end of life journeys and those who are caring for them and those who are grieving. Um, some, and I'm, we're not talking religion, 
we're talking the big issues of the meaning of life and what happens beyond this life and those kinds of things. And our volunteers are not trained to answer any of those questions, but they're trained to be aware of their own places that they hold those questions for themselves and to be able to be present to others in wherever the other is open-mindedly and open-heartedly accepting. Um, And then also coming with a whole stockpile full of knowledge about other resources that are available in the community and in print or in organizations, you know, um, things that can, the folks that we're serving can be connected with to, to, um, to get enhance. That, that kind of emotional support. If you just tuned in, by the way, this is the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and we are speaking with Jody Wolford Tucker, the Executive Director of Hospice Volunteers of Hancock County. So, we are now learning about what you go through to become a volunteer. And we're getting the, the, the sense that there is a difference. Some of us do have this idea, this is only end of life. This is where you have the doctors and you have uh, the nurses, but we're actually saying that we're able to, as a community, as the uh, hospice volunteers program, we're able to intervene at different stages earlier. Maybe somebody just got a diagnosis perhaps, or. Uh, that would be a, a time. And, and you're talking about how the volunteer can interact with the family. So, you know, some of us have done research or have read about this. I, I, it makes me think of uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross I, and, and her work. You must be familiar with that when you mentioned the stages that people go through. Is that is that what you were referring to? Or is there other research happening now that, I mean... She was Thank amazing. you for saying that. It makes me laugh because I definitely caught myself as I use the word stages that people would think of the stages named by Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Her work was landmark work and important. And we have all learned from that and built on that. And no, that those weren't the stages but, I was talking about. But, but for those who's like, who's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? Yeah. She yeah. actually worked, she was a, a, a therapist a, 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 and worked with end of life people and had them do drawings and understand how they felt about their diagnosis or how they felt about chemotherapy or, and, and started to have this idea of, of these different levels, these stages that you go through of denial, or I don't have them all in front of me where both of us are doing this today, <laughs> but, um, um, and you go into bargaining. Well, if I'm doing this, if, if I, if I give to charity or if I'm a better person, maybe I'll get, you know, I won't die. Um, then, uh, you know, going through all of these ways of accepting, of getting, to acceptance and then you bring your family with you on on that on that journey and the community with you so we want to talk about the, the ideas of death and dying which seems to be uh, of course what comes up for people when you say the word hospice anyway but now you're saying no we're not talking about that at all what do you mean but, <laughs> but well, so we're going to have different threads here i think this is what this healthy options is going to be uh, all of those things that you mentioned are part of the kubler ross model and they are all real and they're all important 
what we have moved away from is talking about that model as what people go through because we have found that people place judgments on themselves or others. Oh, if you're not in this stage by now, then da, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And so when we use a model, a visual model, instead of some kind of a linear, okay, anger, denial, bargaining, you know, whatever, we, it's, it's all just this mixed jumble. If you could just take a crayon and just scribble, 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 and, and make just a mess. It's more like that, you know, because you might have anger and some acceptance and some bargaining and some, you know, spiritual thing going on all at the same time. And you go back and forth between them. So to lessen the amount of expectation of how one is going to go through a journey and at what in what order we've we've moved a, we've put a little less emphasis on that specific model labeled as stages when i use the word stages um i'm just talking about the journey and and people going through their own journeys and they're applicable to both the person with the life limiting illness their loved ones, their caregivers, everybody is experiencing those same things, the anger and the fear and the bargaining and the, all of those things. So um, it's, it's broader and messier than that. (laughs) Yeah. I, 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 because that was so groundbreaking and now we have many years now. I actually, I remember when there was, my mother was, was dying. I actually worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross while I, I went to see her. She was in New York at the time and we actually chatted about this. And so that was in 1981, that was 1980. So we have a lot of experience and that's when hospice really started to take off is, wait a minute, there's, a, there's something that we can help. We can support the whole community. We can support the family. It's not just one individual going through this. And I, I think what you're talking about, which I, I love, is through experience that, yes. you know, and I don't think from that, 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 uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross would, would uh, argue with any of that. She would say, absolutely, everybody's going through it in this way. And the, the brilliance of the experience of being able to adapt and be able to hold that, uh, that person or that family is, right. is quite brilliant. So, so there you are as a volunteer. You're not necessarily a, changed, a trained therapist or you're not a chaplain. You're not a, you know, a, a, a spiritual person in that way. So how do you learn to intervene? How do you, again, you were talking about resources, but as, as a, since you went through the training, was there an aha moment? What something that, whoa, I didn't realize were, or wow, I, I get it. Well, in my 15 years of being the executive director of hospice volunteers of Hancock County. And yes, I've gone through both of the trainings, uh, volunteer trainings, but also continuing training as they come and go. And through this pandemic over the last year, there have been fantastic 
trainings available via Zoom by any number of sources. And we are just soaking them up. And at the same time, we then are turning around and offering them to our volunteers in our community. I think we are currently at like 29 educational programs that we have offered via Zoom since April of last year. And we've had you know, 50 people attend and we've had as few as 10 or nine attend. So we say an average of 20 people and they range from everything from, you know, how to fill out an advanced directive to, um, oh, rites of, rites of spring in various uh, traditions uh, across cultures, um, self-care, laughter as a, as a means of, experiencing life, um, you know, so just every topic that you can think of that might serve both our volunteers who are providing this care to others and our community going through a very tough time have been part of these trainings that we have offered. And as I said, taking advantage of other offerings throughout. So in all of that, I would say I have a lot of aha moments and mostly they have to do in my position, I do serve patients and have facilitated support groups and done some one-on-one, -on -one, but not nearly as much as my two colleagues who are the program directors of those two types of services nor nearly as much as our volunteers. Um, you know, I've got to do a lot of administrative work, but in those aha moments being, as we watch a person who comes in so scared by yeah. by the sadness that they're feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's real. And as they it's totally real, as they experience the support and come to understand that what they're experiencing is natural, there's they're not crazy. <laughs> they're experiencing something that's really, really hard and really they've not been through it before and they need support to be able to go through it. Those transitions are just so beautiful. And it's such an honor to get to witness. So those are aha moments. For me in my position as an administrator, I have many very strong moments of just being amazed at the ways that members of our community support us. One came in yesterday, we've got the hospice regatta coming up in July, and we're in the process of finalizing the major sponsors who are, um, you know, have very extensive media presence for their sponsorship at those levels. And a surprise one came in yesterday, and I was just... I, giggling. I mean, it was like, this is so fantastic. You know, we weren't expecting it at all. You know, you said something earlier that made me think of this phrase and I've got it, uh, it uh, placard with it over on my wall over there. 
that hospice is a gift the community gives itself. And that is so true, um, both in terms of, in, in our case, we are not supported by any reimbursement from you know, insurance or anything. We are fortunate to have an endowment that provides the, the earnings on which uh, provide about um, 15% of our operating budget. And that has been funded through bequests over the years, primarily. Um, and we do have contracts with medical hospices that um, pay us a stipend to co-share, co-serve their patients. That makes up about 7% of our budget. Um, the rest of it, like 20 or 75 to 78% is made up through charitable gifts from the community, mm. individuals, businesses, family foundations, and we're, and then, so besides the financial support that makes it possible for us to keep the lights on and, and pay a staff of four, we also then have the volunteers who come out of their communities, who commit to not only the original 32-hour training, but an ongoing training of eight to 12, eight to 10 hours every year. And they give so much more than that. And um, they serve from their communities in their communities. You know, this large county is, is divided in our service areas into four regions so that our volunteers come from and serve within their own communities. And it's just a, like you ask about aha moments, there truly are these beautiful moments and um, our volunteers step up to provide there's, they're just, the ways that they, they'll go out of their way, they'll drive a couple of extra hours each direction to go pick up a, a piece of equipment for someone who is in a, a life limiting journey, whose life will be enhanced for just the next few weeks by this piece of equipment. Volunteers don't think a minute then, you know, we'll offer to pay for their gas. No, they won't let us pay for their gas. You know, it's like, they're amazing. Wow. They're amazing. So, so it's a lot of the volunteers and I, I'm remembering it's, it's going into a house, it's going into a home. How did that get adapted during the pandemic? How, how are we doing this now? What's right. Um, the, yes. Obviously we had to make some adjustments. Oh, we did for sure. Um, for the patient care, training or excuse me, the patient care services that our volunteers provide. Um, most of that is in private homes. Some, a significant portion is in new, uh, nursing homes and some even is in hospitals. Um, when the pandemic hit, all of that had to stop abruptly in person. And I think we were serving somewhere between 25 and 30 patients at that time. Oh and those all went to um, the ways that we could continue to provide support electronically via phone or Zoom, um, conversations with um, caregivers over the phone, um, our volunteers reading to their patients over the phone, um, that kind of thing. That continued for a handful of months. And then starting 
I guess in the, the last quarter, maybe it was the third to last quarter of last year, 2020, that started to open back up with our medical partners, very carefully um, planning, you know, the care plan, very careful, very specific and careful training of the volunteers who are going to go in and be face-to-face -face with full PPEs. Um, and then once the vaccine started becoming available, they were made available to our volunteers who were um, either at that point serving patients or willing to serve patients in person. And um, so once that happened, then, you know, the, the protocols are adjusted accordingly. Um, and those are still evolving. They're evolving for different populations. If a patient has a, a malady that they can't wear a mask, how do we adapt our PPE to, you know, serve in that situation? Um, so that is still evolving. It has come so far already with very specific, as I said, training and, and so forth. What has been amazing is all of our support groups and one-on-one -on -one, um, bereavement support also had to not be in person. And that we started almost immediately training our volunteers on how to use Zoom. And that was a huge leap because none of us, I had never used Zoom before in my life myself. You know, we had to educate ourselves. We had to get Zoom. We didn't have it before the pandemic. You have to get a teenager, age. yeah, and the healthy out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a little bit of that for sure. But at any rate, so training the vault. No, let me just, I know that I, I just want to let you know if you have just tuned in, by the way, we're having a very interesting conversation here on Healthy Options. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're uh, with our guest today, Jody Wolford Tucker, the Executive Director of Hospice Volunteers of Hancock County. We are learning all about ways that um, the, as I love the phrase that, that uh, Jody Wolford Tucker said, hospice is a gift the community gives to itself gives to itself. So we're continuing and now we're learning about how the adjustments had been made for uh, the pandemic and how that's uh, progressing. So, yeah. yes. Thank you, Rhonda. Yeah, you get me going. I get excited and keep talking. So please do. Um, <laughs> um, so the bereavement support during the pandemic, all of that, well, we had one or two groups with a couple of sessions left to go last March. Those finished out. Then starting in, well, starting right in April, we started offering um, these educational programs uh, via Zoom, offered five starting in April. And then I'm not, then we have a program that we have offered a few times over the past couple of years that we called aging and loss. And it was looking at all of the losses that accumulate, not only the, the death of a loved one, which is part of it, but also as we age and our own health changes, our financial situations change, we retire from jobs, our kids move away, you know, different things. Well, that program was very popular in and of itself, but it has evolved into what has become 
a program that we called Choosing Resilience, which was piloted during the pandemic. And the very first offering of that, and that's a seven week program, the very first offering of that had 25 participants and it was being offered over Zoom. So for part of it, it was all together. And then there is a support component where it was broken out into breakout rooms. And we started that program, that pilot program with five people on a waiting list. We just couldn't accommodate anymore at that time. So, you know, we're adapting our offerings we're adapting how we are presenting them. We're adapting how we educate ourselves. And if we, we all have to be both open-minded and committed. Um, and, yeah. and in a way excited about all that we're learning and all the ways that we're growing. So I love this Um, idea. I love this idea of the uh, choosing resilience, choosing resilience, which of course uh, we're thinking about it being isolated being in the, in the more of a, of, of that kind of setting. Uh, And who would think that that would be a hospice offering, you know, because that is, well, and I think what we're learning here is how life affirming this really is, um, isn't it? I, we're talking about, yes. when you talk about the goals, this is, brings us back to what you started uh, talking about, that even in hospice, it's not always, it can be, and it, it is, a component is the end of life aspect that we think about, perhaps those who've just joined us, um, uh, we're thinking, oh, hospice, end of life. But what you're talking about too is when you mention goals, people who may have a diagnosis or may not, still have, have a lot of living to do. So how does that resiliency workshop work? I, I, I can imagine why there would be a waiting list for that. That's just right. so exciting for people to get together and discuss and to perhaps have some practical suggestions as well. Action. Oh, absolutely. It is a combination of those things. I, have, I am not one of the leaders of that group. So I can't answer a lot of the specifics, but it would definitely, in fact, it's called a workshop, but it's like a, and support group. It's a workshop and support service. Um, So yes, it's, it's exercises that help participants recognize and name for themselves what challenges are challenging them so that they can develop strategies for the resilience that they want to and need to build to be able to move through those times of challenge. And it is um, presenting resources and, um, you know, leading them through. There's so much that comes from the connection with others. You, we learn so much from one another. Coming into a group situation like that, a person might only know that at this stage in my life, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And I, I'm experiencing sadness around all the things I've had to let go. I, I don't know 
how I'm going to do this. So they come into a group like that and they hear from others about how a, they've, they've experienced a lot of the same things and how they've moved through those things, what was helpful to them. But also these are facilitated. That particular program is, is facilitated. And so the facilitators who are trained to do so come with, you know, resources and, and direction for ways for the participants to um, wrestle with their questions and um, formulate their own goals and strategies for, you know, working toward those goals. That is so interesting too, because that's uh, certainly not limited to the pandemic, not limited to the circumstances of the last year and, and almost and, and four months. It's that would be can be taken into all sorts of, of um, living, just yeah. whatever normal life, living is. That's another conversation. We'll have that conversation. How to leave your office, how to leave your house. <laughs> that's another, that's, that's the other conversation. How to leave your house after you've been sitting in it for, uh, for 13 months or whatever it is. But um, we digress. Um, the Hospice Volunteers is, uh, of, of Hancock County is doing these amazing outreach, even, even with these new limitations that are turning out not to be so limiting after all, would you say? Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, and you said, you know, we digress with what you were just saying there about how to leave your house. But in fact, that's not really a, a digression because we as an organization are right now, I mean, I just wrote this vision paper last week and it was discussed at our board meeting about challenges, opportunities, and trends that we are facing right now. And at, you know, how what do we need to be looking at as we do the next stages of our strategic planning? One of those both challenges, opportunities, and trends is related to exactly what you're saying. Coming through 15 months of being more isolated than any of us ever expected to be, and the fear and the loss that has come with that, and the changes in our own routines, anxiety around the opening up, and what is going to be different about how we do life in person now, those are big things on the horizon that people are dealing with right now. And yes, we're, we can't, as I said earlier, we can't be all things to all people. We are not going to have all the answers to those things. But as we plan our presence in the community going forward, we've got our antenna up for just exactly what you were saying, you know, because this is real. This is where we are right now. Um, I also wanted to comment, you were saying about the people setting goals and, you know, the things we might think of as, oh, I want to be able to take my grandchild to Disney World, or I want to see my son graduate from the Naval Academy or things. I mean, those are both examples that I'm aware of of people setting goals as far as I'm going to be healthy enough to do these things for this long until I get this done. And people are supported in being able to reach those goals. 
And there's a much broader type of goal living that people do when dealing with the big questions of life and death. And I'm reminded of a book that really is a favorite of mine in this line of work. And it's called The Four Things That Matter Most. And it's by Dr. Ira Byock, B-Y-O-C-K. And the four things that matter most are saying, please forgive me, or wrestling with these things. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. And this book goes through the journeys that Dr. Bayok has witnessed and can describe as people who are living with these challenges and these threats and these fears that are related to end of life or life limiting journeys and saying goodbye in grief journeys um, and how transformative talk about goals, how transformative it can be in life to, to wrestle with these kinds of communications and connections with others. So almost re transforming into truly authentic self. <laughs> One of the important things. Well, right, how do we go through life? There are many, many things that we have learned culturally, societally, in our families, this is how you are, this is how you quote, should be. And here you are confronted with, well, wait a second, what does this all mean? What is this, what is the, what matters most? And exactly. And yeah. so cleaning it up a little bit or, yeah. or saying, hey, thank yeah. you. That's yeah. huge or I forgive, or, or I, or please forgive me. That I think is the, uh, that's a biggie. Wow. Yeah. To work yeah. with people in that. And, and I'm, I would imagine oh. as the volunteer, you are, people are going to talk about that. Yeah. And volunteers, including me in a volunteer relationship with a hospice patient, the patient dictated and I wrote and mailed for the patient several letters to loved ones. Um, talk about relationship building and just saying goodbye. Um, our volunteers are very, very prepared to support in those ways. You know, um, Recently, well, one of the things we've been doing through the pandemic is hosting two what we call volunteer socials each week, where our volunteers can just come on to Zoom and visit with one another and share stories and, you know, and I was hosting one of those recently and absolutely without prompting, the conversation got around to, um, how, their thoughts about what they like about being part of this hospice community. And for me, three things stood out and I wrote them down because they are so true for me in this work and in this organization. These are direct quotes, three of our volunteers. Hospice is a place where people get real. 
People share their stories and it is a safe place. And those three concepts really provide a nice summary for me in terms of how I have experienced being part of hospice volunteers of Hancock County and the hospice world in general. We have fantastic, as I mentioned earlier, medical hospice colleagues throughout this region. We, and we are delighted and honored to work with them shoulder to shoulder. And so in the hospice field in general, it, you know, when you're talking about life limiting challenges, end of life journeys and the challenges of saying goodbye to the people who are most important in our lives, it does tend to strip away the frivolous. Not always, and it is not perfect. It is not a utopia, no. but we're, we at least try to be prepared to let those things exist too in people's journeys. The hardest things, the times when families really are struggling and not coming together and not able to communicate, we can be present and we can witness for them and we can be non-judgmental and we can just offer them strength of knowing they're not alone as they go through these things. Not being alone. I love this. Get real, share stories, and a safe place to share stories. And the frivolous, the frivolous falls away. <laughs> it's interesting. It does, how- and yet I don't want to say it's, it's, it's all, you know, serious moping, moping either. We have a lot of laughs. But wait a minute, getting real and telling <laughs> stories in a safe place is not about mopey necessarily. That is actually you know, can be a lot of laughter, can be a lot of joy. Why not? Why not? Because people don't, may not even realize the full lives they've led. Do do you notice that? People don't even notice or are not even aware of who they've affected or how they've been a positive influence or or not. (laughs) But um, all of those... Yeah, I mean, what you just said is absolutely right. Just the sharing can call up for people remembrances of times that they had a, they touched someone that they hadn't thought about in 20 years or something. You are absolutely right. Yeah. It's funny though, I was, I'm looking, I don't think I have it here to show you, but on that line, there is a book out that the Ellsworth Public Library is part of um, the National, National Education Association, what's called a big read. And it's um, the book this year is called, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? And um, <laughs> hospice volunteers of Hancock County and Friends in Action and I think Betsy Wright Cancer Resource Center are all partners with the Ellsworth Public Library and and other libraries in the area may be doing it too because it's a national effort by the NEA for this big read and it's a several month long effort 
to promote community awareness and programming around this book. Can't we talk about something more positive or more pleasant? It's, um, and it's done in a graphic novel style, which is cartoons basically, but it, it's around helping people have the discussions with loved ones about their end of life wishes and, um, you know, where to find the necessary documents and, you know, all of those kinds of things, but it's, it's not a small book. It's a, you know, it's, it's a fun thing. It would be like a, that's great. A child's cartoon book, but it's not written for children at all. Oh, graphic novels and graphic, uh, they're, they're very uh, important. important genre and that's a great way to do this if you've just tuned in i'm rhonda Feynman. you're listening to the healthy options program on weru community radio our guest today is jody wolford tucker the executive director of hospice volunteers of hancock county we are this is so interesting that that book is we'll we'll have all of this of course archived and we'll have it as a list of resources for this healthy options program Um, I want to get back to something you started with or what you're mentioning with this, this graphic novel. What is it called? Can't we talk about something more pleasant? Can't we talk yes. about something more pleasant? And then the documents. So what are you seeing? People need to have a sense of what, think about, but maybe not when they're in hospice or not, right, just in life. What do we need to do to prepare ourselves? What's a, what is it? You mentioned something about a healthcare directive. You mentioned that at the beginning. What are those things? Let's just talk, get real a little bit. What are the, what are the practical, you know, things we need to do just as human beings so that things yeah. go the way we want them to go? Right. Well, um, we do, we should all, they, the, you know, we should the family. Uh, oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we should go ahead. <laughs> From what the recommendation is that anyone over 18, because they at 18 are considered an adult, a legal adult and in charge of their own affairs, um, should have an advanced directive. And that is just, if nothing else appoints someone to be their spokesperson, person to make health-related, treatment-related decisions if they are unable to do so. Um, It will expedite the process of getting treatment started. It will make it easier on the family to be able to have the healthcare providers talking to them, sharing information, helping them make decisions. Um, So that at the very least, and that can be done in any number of ways, talking to one's physician for sure. Um, On the main Department of Health and Human Services, there is an advanced directive form that can be downloaded. Um, We have a couple of different products that we use frequently, one of which and the one I'm most familiar with um, is called Five Wishes. And it's a little booklet and it's put out by um, the Center on Aging, I think, um, where it leads the person answering the questions through five questions of, you know, who do you want to be your healthcare uh, proxy? And it's specific. People get afraid of this. They don't want to give over control too early. But this is worded in such a way, if you are unable 
to speak for yourself, then who would you want to speak for you? Um, that kind of thing. And then very specific scenarios. Um, what kind of treatment you would want if you were, you know, unconscious and, you know, whatever. And it goes through these things, but it's, it's, the questions are, lead the person to reflect on what they would want in these five areas. And it just, it's, it's a good user-friendly document. So I recommend that five wishes. There are others, um, things, uh, I think it's called caring conversations is another one. Um, there are many other documents along that line, but what they do, what those documents do and, and just the straight form that you can get off of the website is fine. It's, it's legal, it's good, it's fine. But these other pieces are written in ways that are meant to help families have the conversations. Just like this book we just mentioned, can't we talk about something more pleasant? It's a way for families to have the conversations, you know, and sitting around, this is so important do that before it's a crisis. Do it sure. when you can sit at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee or whatever other beverage <laughs> and um, visit and make a joke. Uh, you know, grandma might say, I wanna have, um, uh, she's back in the saddle again, playing on the radio when she's in her last days. You know, I mean, I just pulled that out of the air. Yeah, but, no, that's you know, great, of course. A silly thing and feed me banana flavored popsicles for as long as I can take them. Yeah, I mean, it can be, it truly can sure. be things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and the do not resuscitate and the, I want, uh, if anybody's arguing, forget it. You're out of the will. Oh, and a will is another thing, oh. but right, right, right. Those yeah. kinds of, but seriously, this is what I want and you will yeah. get what you want. I was listening uh, to a, a financial person yesterday uh, on, on the radio and she was saying, well, how many people think, how many percentage of people have a will? And then she, you know, people say, however, and then she said, well, the thing is everybody has a will, but they're not always written by you. You always have a will, but they're not written by you because if you don't say what you want, someone else will, will. <laughs> and yeah. so, and I think that's the case for end of life things that, hey, I do want, I did it my way playing nonstop. I want, you know, whatever. I want my grandkids here. I want this one there. I don't want so-and-so here, you know, whatever. If you yeah. want it your way, yeah. yeah, let people know, write it down. Well, and, and on that note, you make some very good points, Rhonda. I, I was focused on the, you know, advanced directive, but other aspects of your will and your financial things in order and all that, that can be done with local lawyers. We have some that we work with. If people, you know, don't know who to call, um, we'd be happy to share some direction in that way. Um, but I also will direct folks, um, I think through the nursing homes, um, I they there are like checklists also. I mean, we have them as well, and people can ask us. But I, the what I'm thinking of that's a really helpful, extensive document on getting your 
getting your affairs in order checklist and not just a checklist. There are explanations for how to do it um, is through a local uh, funeral home. So if folks would like to, um, you know, obtain one of those, they can either go to a funeral home, call a funeral home or, or call here. And I, we'd be glad to, to pass those along. So I can't even believe it. The hour uh, the, has flown by. We are really right at the end of our, uh, of our, of our talk. We've, if anyone is interested in becoming a volunteer or wanting more information, we're going to have all that information, but maybe you could give a, a number or a way to contact you. And, and then um, for that's the uh, hospice volunteers of, um, of yeah. Hancock County. Tell us. Right. How well, to our get phone number um, is 207-667-2531. Our website, all this information is on our website. A lot of information is on our website, including testimonials from many volunteers, um, many things, is just hospiceofhancock.org hospiceofhancock.org. Well, um, and we're also um, on Facebook. So there you go. And, and on Facebook, we are hospice volunteers of Hancock County. And um, so folks can go. like us there and get our posts. And great. great. I cannot even believe that we are out of time. My goodness. Our guest today on Healthy Options has been Jody Wolford Tucker, Executive Director of Hospice Volunteers of Hancock County. Thank you for being with us today on Healthy Options. Again, hospice, uh, hospice of Hancock right.org. And did you say that? Yes. We will have links to this and other information that was mentioned when we post the show on the public affairs section of weru.org. In the meantime, if you missed any part of the program or would like to share it, please go to weru.org to find our recent programs on demand. Thank you, Joel Mann, Amy Brown of WERU for engineering support, to Petra Hall for production assistance. And as always, thanks to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman. I'm wishing you the best in health. Thank you so much. 